And now this afternoon, for just a couple of moments, I invite your attention uh, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 8. Picking up sort of on a study that we considered last week. You recall that phrase from the Lord, to fear not? Well, we want to consider another setting today in which we find those words. So Luke chapter 8, and I want to begin in verse 49. Let us hear the word of God. While he yet spake, There cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. And he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Last week we began to trace the times in the Gospels where the Lord has occasion to say to his disciples, Fear not. And there certainly were many situations that naturally would have led to fear during the days that Christ walked with his disciples on earth. I don't know if we realize this enough. I don't know if we appreciate this enough. That identifying with Christ in the days that he walked in this world became a rather dangerous proposition. You may think, for instance, of the time that the disciples crossed the stormy sea and feared for their lives. What a dangerous situation. You think of the time they came face to face with a demon-possessed man who was so ferocious that he couldn't be bound by chains. Here again, another occasion for fear. You think of the growing antagonism and animosity of the Jewish leaders toward Christ, and you begin to appreciate that walking with Christ during his earthly ministry certainly brought with it a sense of danger, which could be a very fearful thing. It seems that there were many who showed an interest in Christ, but for fear of the Jews, were afraid to confess that interest openly. So we read in John 7 and verse 13, Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. It was a fearful thing to walk with Christ in those days. 
And I think we sometimes have the wrong idea of what it would have been like to have seen Christ the way the disciples saw him. We think that it would have been thrilling just to tag along and see with our own eyes the miracles that Christ performed. And yet when you read through the Gospels, you're presented with a very different picture. It was a dangerous thing to follow Christ. You ran the risk of coming under the wrath of the Jewish leaders, which evidently was frightening enough to make many believers keep as low a profile as they could with regard to their faith in Christ. In this atmosphere, or this environment then, the word of Christ to fear not would have been most meaningful and comforting to his disciples and to others to whom he directed these words. In our last study, we saw how these words were spoken to Peter after Christ had demonstrated his sovereign power over all nature by providing the disciples with a miraculous catch of fish. Following this revelation of Christ, being the ruler of all nature, Peter became very afraid and said to the Lord in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Well, you know what? The knowledge that we are sinners should make us fear. And yet how comforting and how assuring and how blessed was Peter and how blessed are we to consider that it was in response to Peter's acknowledgement of sin that Christ tells him and through his word tells us to fear not. Only Christ is qualified to speak those words and have them carry any uh, convincing meaning at all. He can say them because he is the Son of God. He can say this, he can call on us not to fear because he died for our sins. But we come now to the second setting in which these words fear not occur. And the circumstance is similar to the first setting, except it's a little more specific. The first condition addressed by these words is sin. The condition addressed in the setting before us now is that condition which arises from sin, which is death. And what the word of God conveys to us from this word of Christ spoken to these grieving parents is that we need not fear death. Well, three things I want to bring to your attention then with regard to these words spoken in this setting, fear not, we need not fear death. Consider with me the fearful circumstance addressed by Christ is death. We thought a little bit on that this morning. Look with me now at verses 41 and 42 from Luke chapter 8. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. We have the account here of a man who was very troubled, very anxious about his child, 
His only child, who happened to be a 12-year-old girl who was dying. You can't read the words of the narrative without perceiving that in this troubled father's mind, this was an emergency. Christ must come, and he must come right away before it's too late. You can certainly sense the growing impatience of this man as the crowd throngs Christ. You can detect the adrenaline that must have flown through his veins and the near panic that must have seized him when Christ seems to be distracted by a woman that manages to touch the border of his garment and gain healing from Christ. And can't you just feel the aching heart of this father sink when one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, reaches him and says to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. It's as if he said to him, It's too late now. Death has arrived before Christ has arrived, and so death evidently has won. Well, death is certainly a terrible enemy. It robs us. It robs us of life. It severs ties that are precious, and it is no respecter of persons. It may strike at anyone. It may strike at any time. And especially is its awful sting felt when it strikes down a child. Oh, it's a sad thing when an aged man or woman dies, but we are able in some measure to console ourselves by the thought that they lived long lives And oftentimes the suffering that accompanies those that are aged is relieved by death. But when a child dies, the tragedy is all the more magnified by the tremendous sense not only of the loss of the child, but the loss of the potential that that child had. Oh, what might this child have done? What might this child have accomplished? What joy and blessing this child may have experienced if only death hadn't robbed it of life? The tragedy of a child's death is greatly magnified, therefore. And let's make no mistake about it. Death is branded in Scripture as an enemy. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, and in his epistle to the Hebrews, and we touched on this verse this morning also, Paul, I take Paul to be the author of Hebrews, he points out that the fear of death is a source of lifetime bondage. It's in Hebrews 2.15. And we know the effects of death in its fullness. Spiritual death is what cuts off sinners from God right now. There are those who walk through life and they're dead. Oh, they see and they hear and they breathe and they walk and they talk, but still they're walking dead men because they're cut off from God and they live their lives with no reference to God. And physical death is what cuts off men from the land of the living in this world. The soul departs and the body is laid in the grave. And even though we know that in Christ we have eternal life, yet we also know that death is what terminates many opportunities that we have only while we're in this life. 
The psalmist expresses this sentiment a couple of times in the Psalms when he says, for example, in Psalm 6 and verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of thee, in the grave who shall give thee thanks? And in Psalm 88 and verse 11, Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in destruction? And so while we anticipate eternal life in Christ, we still bear a dread toward physical death. It is an enemy. It is the great separator. And then, of course, most fearful of all is eternal death, when men are cut off from God forever and given over to eternal damnation. This is called the second death in Revelation 20 and verse 14. This is the circumstance, then, that we find Christ addressing in this setting by the words, fear not. And what a word. What a word of grace. What a word of comfort. Can Christ really speak such a word? What authority does he have to say such a thing? Well, this leads to our next consideration about this setting. Two, the gracious word spoken by Christ overcomes death. The gracious word spoken by Christ overcomes death. Verse 50, Luke 8, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And then verse 54, He put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise, and her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. Rather interesting to note that death never crossed the path of Christ without being conquered by Christ. Christ was triumphant over death every time he encountered it. We find an instance of that in the passage before us, in Luke 8. We find other instances of it as well in the preceding chapter. In chapter 7, we read of how Christ and his disciples entered into the city of Nain, and when they reached the gate of the city, it seems that they just happened to come across the path of a funeral procession. Sort of like a circumstance you may find yourself in on occasion. You're made to wait in traffic sometimes so that a funeral procession can pass you by on its way to the cemetery. But in the instance before us now in Luke chapter 7, Christ interrupts the funeral procession by raising the, the, the widow's son from the dead. Death was given no place before the presence of Christ. And of course, you're familiar with the very detailed and dramatic account of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Wherever Christ encountered death, he overcame it. And he thus demonstrated repeatedly his sovereignty over the realm of death. And that sovereignty is emphasized all the more in the way that Christ overcame his own death. The very thing that we're commemorating today. 
John chapter 10, verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. His reign over death, according to Paul, is what proves that he is the Son of God. And again, I'll read the words I referenced this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Christ is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection proclaims who he is. That's the meaning of that verse in Romans. And so he alone then is qualified when it comes to the statement, fear not. He alone can say, Fear not when it comes to the fearful circumstance of death, because he has amply demonstrated that he possesses the keys of hell and of death. Revelation 1.17 He has demonstrated that sovereign power in your life when you gained a saving interest in him, He called you by name, as it were, the way he did to Lazarus, or the way he did to the maid in our text, and commanded you through the gospel to arise. And you heard his voice with the hearing of the heart, and you became a follower of him. I love the way Charles Wesley expresses this spiritual experience in his hymn, Amazing Love. Stanza 4 reads like this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We pray for such an experience when we sing the first stanza of that hymn, Revive thy work, O Lord. Thy mighty arm make bare. Speak with the voice which wakes the dead and make thy people hear. Oh, that has been your experience as a believer in Christ. We desire it to be the experience of others. We desire that those that are near and dear to us find Jesus Christ. It does become easy to grow discouraged with those that have long rejected the gospel of Christ. But today I would have you hear the Savior's word if you've never heard it. Fear not. Christ is able to say such a thing to us today because he is sovereign over the realm of death and his power is able to overcome death. There is no dead sinner that is beyond the reach of his grace, so we have great encouragement to never give up on souls, never give up on bearing the burden for them, never give up on praying for them, pray that Christ will indeed speak to them through us, with such power that dead souls are brought to life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have great cause to praise and thank God today because that power has been wrought on us. What did he merit more than another man? What did we possess in terms of godliness and wisdom? We were dead. 
We were spiritually dead, yet the word of Christ reached our souls with power. And so we see the, fir- the, the fearful circumstance addressed by Christ is death. We see the gracious word spoken by Christ overcomes death. And then consider with me thirdly and finally and briefly, the alternative to fear required by Christ is faith. Again, the words of our text, fear not, believe only. Fear not, believe only, Christ says to this distressed couple. We saw in our last study that Christ presented an alternative to Peter when he told him not to fear. He said to him, fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Luke 5 and verse 10. Fear was to be replaced by the mission, the mission of bringing souls to Christ. Now we see that in the setting before us, another alternative is given that is to replace fear. Fear must be replaced by faith. Isn't it interesting to see how well Christ knows men? From these instances I've cited, we are able to learn that it's not enough to give up something. It must be replaced by something else. You know, there's a very practical lesson we can draw from what Christ does here, and this can certainly be applicable to parents. Parents are very concerned about the things that they don't want their children to do, and I'm afraid some parents go no further than to apply uh, the prohibition. Son, daughter, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't have this, you can't have that, etc., etc. Just sit on the couch, put your hands on your lap, and be quiet until you turn 18. And then maybe we'll have this discussion again. What too many parents fail to realize is that it's not enough to simply apply the prohibition. You've got to be able to provide the alternative. Christ gives the alternative to fear, which is faith. And what this means is that in order to substitute faith for fear, you're going to have to be more focused on Christ than you are on the fearful circumstance. You're very familiar with the illustration from the Gospels that tell of how Peter walked on water. So long as his eyes were on Jesus, he could do the supernatural. The moment his eyes were diverted by the stormy waves, he began to sink. If we would substitute faith for fear, therefore, we must keep our eyes on the one who has overcome death, one who possesses the keys of hell and of death. We must focus on the one who can speak with the voice that wakes the dead. We must focus on Christ. Oh, for grace to see him then with the eye of faith, if we can but see a little more clearly through that dark glass into which we gaze, then we can expect to see miracles, great miracles, sinners that are dead being brought back to life, death being overcome by life. And not only can we expect to see these miracles, but we can expect to perform them as well. 
Oh, may we hear these words of Christ then this afternoon, and may we take them to heart in the days to come. Fear not, believe only. May God give us the grace to take it to heart. Let's close in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee that Christ does indeed have the power and the authority to call on us not to fear. If it was anyone beside Christ, the words would be hollow and empty. But because they come from Christ, we can take them to heart. So Lord, help us indeed to take thy word to heart and not to fear, but to believe in Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. And may we have the confidence in him of knowing that he will lead and guide and provide and protect. So hear our prayers and take our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.